Amid a wave of investment product innovation over the last several decades, one critical element to investment success has been left behind, asset allocation models. Almost as though suspended in time, they are the same today as they were a half century ago. But relying on age-old conventions when constructing asset allocation advice is a mistake for one simple reason. They fail to capture the unique features of alternative investments, and in particular, illiquidity. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Pulse, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. I'm Matt Palazzolo, and today I'm joined on the phone from Los Angeles by my colleague, Alex Shaloff, Head of Alternative Asset Strategies. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. I know you've had this podcast for two years, so uh, I'm thrilled to have my first invitation <laughs> to join you. Somebody sounds sour. So, Alex, let, let's start by uh, defining what we're talking about here. As I said in the open, we're talking about alternative investments, and in particular, illiquid ones. So, what is an illiquid alternative investment? Man, I think of illiquid alternatives as assets that are not easily traded or that can be quickly traded. And that's because there really is no public market to match a buyer and a seller. Or if there is a market, the shares are so thinly traded that it's almost like a private market. And illiquid alternative investments possess different risks than traditional public assets. And oftentimes these risks are misunderstood because some people look at illiquid investments just because of the sheer nature of the illiquidity as being more conservative. And this causes investors to suboptimally allocate to illiquid alternative investments, if at all. Okay, I want to, I want to touch on that suboptimal allocation. But just to be clear and, and make it tangible for all of our listeners, we're talking about things like real estate. I'm in New York City, so it's uh, buildings on the Upper West Side. It could be private equity. It, it could be private loans that are made. It could be artwork or, or farmland. It could be anything, correct? Yeah, anything where you you know you want to sell it and you can't sell it that week. I think of anything with liquidity that's out past a week or even two, that's exactly in this category. But not trying to get into or out of Procter & Gamble, for example, where you can do that any minute, any second of the day. Right, or an ETF or a mutual fund, exactly. Okay, so let's get to this issue about suboptimal allocation. You mentioned that how um, there's suboptimal allocation to these illiquid alternatives by investors often enough. What's the method by which assets are generally allocated? You know, our work has shown, and we've looked at everything that's out there, most asset allocations for alternative investments is modeled the exact same way as traditional investments, and that's using the efficient frontier. So again, for all of our listeners to level set everybody, the efficient frontier is part of modern portfolio theory in our industry that was developed decades ago. And... In its basic form, it states that the set of quote-unquote optimal portfolios that offer the highest expected return for a given level of risk sit on this efficient frontier curve, if you will. And any portfolio that's not on the curve then is suboptimal. Right, Alex? Yeah, and that's why people have landed forever and ever at that 60-40 uh, on the frontier. 
right? Sixty percent in stocks, forty percent in bonds gives you a certain level of risk or volatility. But if you wanted to maximize the amount of return for that level of volatility, sixty forty is a good combination. Now it doesn't make sense when we add alternatives to the mix to that traditional stock bond or that efficient frontier. And again, in alternatives, I'm talking about real estate and private equity. So so there are some shortcomings to that efficient frontier when we start to add this additional set of asset classes. How should investors think about alternatives differently? Yeah, I think, look, the, I'm not trying to say the efficient frontier is wrong and, and throw away, you know, 50 plus years right, of academic point. research. I think the efficient frontier does a terrific job, but it really just looks at the trade-off between risk and return, which is readily available in the public markets. If you're looking at, at stocks and bonds, boom, it does the job. When you start to mix in alternatives, that's where there's a lot of differences between what's going on in the world of traditional investments and alternative investments. And you know, now one of the ways that we try to capture everything that's different between alternatives and traditional as a sort of a, a memory trick is through an acronym that we call DOLLAR. Okay, so, so D-L-R-R. I've heard you talk about this before. For all of our listeners, what is D-L-R-R? What do each of those letters stand for? Yeah, it's really like DOLLAR because there's two <laughs> R's, but um, D is the unique drivers of return, right? The return sources of alternatives are different. L is leverage, varying levels of leverage. Some use zero. Some investment strategies in the world of alternatives use a massive amount of leverage, and you've got to think about that. The first R is return, not just pure return, but the diverse relationships of return that exist in the world of alternatives. There's not one set of returns that you can apply to alternatives. Um, and the second R, as you'd imagine, is risk that these alternatives carry very unique sources of risk. So we, we use dollar to capture, as I said, everything that's different about alternatives. To this point, investors, as they start to incorporate alternatives into, the, into their mix, are using this catch-all of the alternatives category and saying that they provide this diversification benefit. That essentially making all alternatives the same and saying, I've added a diversification benefit. Why, why then is that coming up short relative to how it could be done a lot better? Let's just walk through how dollar plays out. I'll kind of flip it around and just talk about return first, because that's what people care most about. And again, it's easy to capture return in traditional bonds, traditional stocks. But when you start to dig into alternatives, you know, there, there's very different levels of return in the private markets, for example, like you talked about private equity uh, and you talked about private debt. Private equity is trying to shoot for 20 uh, percent returns. That's very different than private debt that's trying to accomplish a, a steady rate of return and maybe the high single digits. Apples and oranges. Right. But when you dump them into that alternatives catch all category, again, you, you end up doing a disservice to the investor. Same I'd say about leverage, right? I mean, again, back to my point, some strategies use zero leverage, some use lots of leverage. You've got to capture that in your modeling. And I think that flows through to the distinct level 
of risk that alternatives take on. But but look, this takes a lot of work. You know, again, back to the efficient frontier, that's readily available public information. To do a great job in, in modeling for alternative asset allocation, you got to do a lot of work to capture the idiosyncrasies that come with alternative investing. I guess you're, you're highlighting that there are all these different subcategories and makeup of alternatives, that it's not monolithic. And so as your team and, and as your research has uncovered, how do we get at the diversification of alternatives? And in particular, how does illiquidity play into this as well? Yeah, that's the key question, Matt. And that's actually where the research project that really drove the construction of this framework started, was to try to understand what's the difference between an asset class when you've got an investment that's liquid in that asset class and an investment that's illiquid in that asset class. Because most investors look at illiquid investments, things that don't trade on an ongoing basis, or maybe you only get a market value once a quarter, for example. And they think of those illiquid investments of, as being diversifying, as being different than their traditional investments, just because of the sheer nature of the illiquidity. What we said is, no, that's completely wrong. You actually have to look at the underlying asset class and then determine the diversification benefit that comes from investing in that asset class. You have to strip out the illiquidity uh, and think about just the underlying asset class. Then you can start to build out your asset allocation. So Alex, can you just give us an example on that? Yeah. How about we compare a private real estate partnership? Can't get more illiquid than real estate, right? You buy a building on Monday, you can't exactly sell it on Tuesday or the following Tuesday or a month later. This is a real illiquid investment. And what if we compared a hedge fund that was buying stocks long that they thought would appreciate and shorting stocks that they thought would encounter weakness? maybe those stocks, frankly, are in the real estate sector, right? That they're REITs. The hedge fund is investing in public securities, but it may invest like other hedge funds in a structure that, that has some illiquidity to it. They might say quarterly or a year lockup or something like that, compared to the real estate partnership that might offer liquidity you know, every decade that you're really in an investment like that for over 10 years. So even though both of the investments, you get some transparency, you get some visibility into how they're doing on a quarterly basis, say, even though they're investing in the same asset class, real estate, the conclusion is that in most asset allocation models, if you're using back to this efficient frontier idea, if you're just plugging it into alls, you'll say, oh, real estate, boom, right, put it right there. But the correlation levels that come from the real estate partnership are very different than would come from the hedge fund, right? There's a different level of correlation to the broad equity markets, I'd argue, uh, from the real estate partnership that would come from the hedge fund that's investing in publicly traded securities. Even though they're in the real estate sector, they're publicly traded stocks. And that, that portfolio would have a much higher correlation to your 60-40 portfolio than the real estate partnership. So that's the work that we did, was really try to uncover what is the underlying investment and what type of correlation does that underlying investment, forget about the entity, the vehicle that owns it, but what correlation does that investment have to the rest of the portfolio? I think that's a really good and helpful example just to make this a little bit more tangible for all of our listeners. 
So, Alex, how do we account for these unique characteristics, the, you know, the acronym that uh, you all came up with, DLRR? How do we account for that in a model in order to make appropriate allocations to alternatives? Matt, we built a model that we really consider next generation as it relates to asset allocation. And the model incorporated the DLRR, but also did so much more. We integrated capital needs, investor preferences, spending requirements. And we've accomplished all of this in what we call alternative impact analysis, or AIA. So Alex, how does this alternatives impact analysis do what you laid out? Well, we were inspired to create AIA because we are looking for a platform that would integrate the distinct characteristics of alternatives, that dollar, in allocation decisions, and to equate all assets, both traditional and alternative, so that a portfolio can be analyzed holistically rather than looking at each part individually. So we accomplished this first by dimensioning liquidity, purpose, which is basically objective, and spending into the model to address everything within dollar. And the second point was that we would allow the model to create an asset allocation that really considered a sector weightings, geographic weightings, market capitalization, really look across the entire portfolio in consideration of liquidity and benchmark construction so that to make sure that the portfolio is aligned with the investor's needs and goals, to make sure that the alternative asset allocation wasn't overwhelming the traditional investment allocation. So Alex, just to be clear, we're talking about a tool that you all built out to help us to decide upon how much of an allocation an investor should have to alternatives alongside the traditional asset classes that they have inside their portfolio. But as you and I know, a model is only as good as the inputs that you put into it. So what are those inputs that you use to come up with this optimal allocation? Well, the model includes each individual investor's priorities and objectives, and we create a return expectation profile and a risk tolerance. Now, to achieve an investor goal, the model considers total asset level, uh, tax rate, any uh, biases or preferences, spending levels, and an investment objective to determine return seeking, diversifying, and risk mitigating targets. That's, so it, our, that's our starting point. So it sounds like it's very customized to the individual. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would also say, Matt, I mean, this is you know, a little pride of authorship here. Nothing like this exists in the marketplace today. And this was liberating for our perspective because we really got to start from scratch. We didn't have to build off something else that existed out there. We could start from scratch. So given, Alex, that there was nothing out there on the shelf, if you were, how did you go about building this model? We started with spending, Matt, because that's a key component. And we felt like what was missing most from traditional asset allocations was this idea of spending. And this is especially pronounced when there's illiquid investments in the portfolio. When an investor spends from their portfolio across liquid and illiquid, right? They, they would normally pull assets from the liquid portion while the illiquid component remains untouched. Now, 
that will, if you just let it run forever and ever, that's going to create theoretically a portfolio that could be entirely illiquid because you would have spent down everything that you had that was liquid. Mm -hmm. But not all illiquid investments have the same level of illiquidity. And so we address this first by categorizing alternative investments as either growth, which means from our purposes, zero liquidity until a final liquidation, or income, which could create ongoing cash flow. So this allows us to more accurately calibrate capital expenditures with the underlying investments. And now, aren't, now, aren't, aren't there, it, yeah, I was going to say, aren't there risks that you all had to, to take into consideration when you were building this out? Exactly. Yeah. To do this the right way, we had to account for risks that, again, don't show up in the efficient frontier. So we have two new risks that, if you'll let me, I'll explain. Yeah, please. Go ahead. Okay. So the first one we call liquidity shortfall risk, and the second one is allocation drift risk. Now, liquidity shortfall risk refers to the likelihood that an investor would run out of liquid money, run out of liquidity at some point over the next 10 years. Liquidity shortfall risk is especially worrisome when portfolios are heavily weighted in illiquid assets. And an investor who spends from that portfolio uh, could run into trouble. So we counter that by avoiding allocations that have more than just a small probability uh, of running out of that liquidity. We really focus on making sure that there's always plentiful liquidity to fund spending needs. Now, the allocation drift risk is actually harder to avoid. And this might sound weird, but we're actually okay with taking on some allocation drift risk where we really have a, a zero tolerance on liquidity shortfall. We're okay taking on a little bit of allocation drift risk because you can end up with good kind of uh, outcomes when you take on this risk. And let me just describe it. So allocation drift risk is the degree to which an asset weight drifts over time due to the disparate patterns of return that we talked about from alternatives, and especially when you compare those return patterns with traditional investments. So you're going to get it. Drift will occur in any portfolio with illiquid investments as the illiquid investments change in value. It will make up either an increasing or decreasing percentage of the overall portfolio. So we create ranges. We want to have bands of allowable allocation drift risk because, again, some of those occurrences, some of the times it might pop up is for good reason. You had terrific investment results in one part of the portfolio, and you have to allow for uh, some range of outcomes that, that capture that. So these unique investor inputs are put together with the alternatives characteristics, you, you put them all together in the model, and then what? The model sends out an, a recommended allocation? Uh, yes and no. I'm going to hedge there. Look, the investor inputs form the basis for the modeled allocation, but we believe that fiduciary controls and other manual adjustments are needed to correct for uh, quantitative biases that exist. So let me use an example. 
A modification that I would bring up is what, what we call fiduciary limitation. This is really a ceiling on the maximum amount of alternative investments an investor should own. Because many alternative investments offer very attractive risk-adjusted returns and low, low correlation to the broad market, you know, there are outcomes, there are results where the model says you should be 100% allocated to alternatives, right? If you think of an aggressive investor with no spending, right. you could make the argument that 100% allocation to alternatives makes sense. In fact, before the completion of modeling additional risks, we came up with this a number of different instances. And so we thought long and hard about the right way to constrain that. And we feel like there should be a ceiling of alternative allocation to, to the total amount that you can allocate to alternatives. And our fiduciary ceiling, if you will, is 50%. And that's constrained because there were a number of outcomes, as I said, where alternatives were allocated 100% or 80% or even 70%. And while this might be contrary to others thinking, um, we really feel like this is the right way as a fiduciary to manage the portfolio. I think that makes total sense. Let's start to bring this all together. I guess in your mind, what are the advantages of using this analysis tool that you all have built? Um, well, there are several advantages. And first, which we didn't talk a lot about, but I will tell you the model analyzes the trade-off between active management and passive management by really pulling out manager skill from returns rather than just give it credit, give managers credit for market movement. Second, it corrects for the biases that corrupt correlation. That was my example of the real estate and the private partnership versus the hedge fund. And finally, it does acknowledge that even in the best alternative investments on the planet, there are things called tail risk events. So tail risks, you're talking about something like the worst 1% of outcomes that could happen. So while there's a low probability or likelihood that such an event may occur, this provides an accurate perspective on total risk by baking in this tail risk possibility. Exactly, Matt. I mean, if you think about it, illiquid investments, when you own them, tail risks can actually magnify the conditions that create difficult equity markets. Why? Why does that happen? Because owners of rarely traded instruments become forced sellers at a time when market prices are falling. So in other words, if you're trying to maintain liquidity at a time when the, the entire portfolio, both not just the alternative part that might be illiquid, but the liquid portion invested in traditional stocks and bonds is under stress, investors may need to sell their illiquid assets almost on a fire sale basis, deep discounts. So understanding the price pressures that exist in illiquid markets was really critical in constructing a model depicting potential downside experiences. Understood. One last question before we let you go. For those listeners who are still on the fence about adding illiquid alternatives to their portfolio, I know we've talked about a lot of nuances and points to help them consider the pros and the cons and the trade-offs. What are the benefits that you would point out to adding alternatives to a diversified portfolio? Wow, Matt. I mean, I know you told me we had a limited time today, but I could go (laughs) on and on here for 
for a while. So let me not do that. I'll try to boil it down. Look, I, I think the diversification benefits of alternatives really starts with return diversification. And what that does is smooth the returns of a portfolio that invests just in traditional assets. You get a big bang for your buck, if you will, from a diversification standpoint. Now, at the same time, returns on alternative investments have historically been higher than those of traditional investments, even traditional stocks. But look, you've got to weigh that against the fact that alternatives can be less liquid. Most investors can only hold a portion of their assets in them, which, as we said, is appropriate. But that's why an allocation uh, to alternatives typically complements, doesn't replace, complements the traditional portfolio allocation. And I think just bottom lining it, alternatives are appropriate for investors looking to achieve strong returns, not have any kind of sacrifice of return. They're appropriate for investors that are looking to mitigate short-term market fluctuations, of which, by the way, we think there's going to be more of coming down the pike. But because of the illiquid nature of these investments, any allocation should be made after consideration of the risks that I brought up, and importantly, as part of a broader allocation to reach the investor's long-term goals. So it's, it's really the combination of alternative investments alongside traditional investments. And I would just, I'll assert that our AIA modeling capability allows investors to allocate to alternatives with a higher degree of precision than ever before. Yeah, great final point. Given all of the points that you made about the differences within alternatives, that it's not monolithic, utilizing a tool like the one that you talked about is a great way to figure out an appropriate amount or range within which to allocate to alternatives alongside traditional stocks and bonds. So, Alex, thanks a lot for uh, talking to us about your research and all of your insights, and I promise it won't be another two years before I have you back on the show. I was going to say, Matt, uh, don't lose my number. (laughs) And thanks to all of you for listening. If you'd like to learn more, please see the link to our blog, A Framework for Allocating to Illiquid Investments, in this episode's description. Also, please email us your thoughts and questions and any feedback that you might have to insights at Bernstein.com. And be sure to find us on Twitter at BernsteinPWM. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bernstein making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.